0: Uh, King Solomon's Mind and we uh, spent the first five Sundays looking at the record of his life in 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11 and uh, we're doing now a little expedition into some of his writings. So yesterday Gillian did a fine um, exposition in Song of Songs and this morning and next Sunday we're in Ecclesiastes And then we'll wind up the series in Proverbs uh, for the last study uh, in this particular series. If you're battling to find Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes is the order. Uh, If you find yourself in Song of Songs, you've gone too far. Uh, So let's have Ecclesiastes chapter 1 open in front of us. And uh, let's ask for the Lord to help us as we come to this text. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take my words in all their imperfection and that you would use them to unfold the written word and so lead us to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, friends, what makes life worth living? Uh, When it's over, uh, when you are um, on your last lap, uh, how are you going to decide whether your life has been successful or not? I think it's a question that everybody asks, isn't it, at some time or other? And uh, some people will say, well, um, it's all about the quality of life. Well, fair enough. But how are you going to measure that? Um, I suppose in your professional life, the measures might be fairly obvious to you. Uh, For the businessman, uh, it might be that your company makes a profit. It's rather a hard thing to do, I think, in such tough economic times. But uh, for the businessman, success might very well be about that. Uh, For the farmer, it might be good rains. I mean, in agriculture, good rainfall is always the difference, isn't it, between a good crop and no crop at all. What about the student? Well, um, perhaps success for you means top academic honours, Uh, or the opportunity to work towards a master's or or a PhD or whatever it is. And then, of course, there are more personal measures. Uh, So in our own personal lives, a successful life might be, well, something as basic as an honest friend, or um, a warm and loving home, or good health. Interestingly, success is a topic that is frequently addressed in the Bible, and actually particularly in this part of the Old Testament, what we call the wisdom literature. Uh, In case you don't know, the wisdom literature consists of five books. Uh, It's Job, it's Psalms, it's Proverbs, it's Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. And what these books all have in common is that they're all seeking to apply God's laws, not so much to the people of God as a whole, but to the lives of individuals. Uh, They are wisdom for daily living for individual believers. And I think for that reason, many Christians would say that uh, this part of the Bible is one of their favorite parts. Uh, So when uh, our children were very small, we had um, a CD of Proverbs sung to music, and I can tell you that was extremely useful on very long car journeys. Uh, We spent many happy hours stuck in traffic jams, uh, singing Proverbs like, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. I could sing it for you if you asked me afterwards. Uh, Another favorite was, um, listen to advice and accept instruction, and in the end, you will be wise. Well, at the time, Alice was three, and I suspect she had a different translation in her hand, because she insisted that the correct reading of that proverb was, listen to your wife and accept (laughs) instruction, And in the end, you will be wise. And of course, she was quite right. (laughs) Yes, we had a great deal of joy as a family singing Proverbs together. But Ecclesiastes is slightly different. Um, If the book of Proverbs is about wisdom for people who want success, um, Ecclesiastes offers wisdom for people who already have it in some measure. Uh, It's particularly for people who've achieved most, if not all, that they want out of life. Or perhaps more accurately, these people have achieved what they thought they wanted, but having done so, they find it's actually not quite what they thought. They feel that something is missing And so they begin to ask themselves, well, okay, what really makes life worth living? Now, I don't know about you, but in my experience, most people never ask that question. Uh, They would rather just blot it out. Uh, They don't want to deal with the hard questions of life. There's nothing new in that. The poet T.S. Eliot once said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. and I think that's true, isn't it? So, for many, many, many people, escaping reality is actually the way to go, and there are plenty of ways to do it. So, secular or worldly escapism uh, often looks like drowning out reality in in drugs or, or alcohol or endless entertainment. It can be as drastic as a decision to change absolutely everything in our lives. It's what we sometimes refer to as a midlife crisis. Interestingly, there's also such a thing as Christian escapism. And Christian escapism is a retreat into worldly Christianity that is utterly unrealistic. It's theologically correct It's very regular in church attendance, but it's spiritually disengaged. It's got no real interest in evangelism or helping people in need or personal growth in our knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus. There's no passion for Jesus. No, that kind of escapism is really only an insurance policy for the day of our death just in case the Bible is right when it talks about heaven and hell. But it doesn't satisfy your soul. It doesn't thrill your heart. It's not what makes life worth living. So, is there a better answer? Well, Ecclesiastes says very definitely there is. But having said that, you won't find it in this fascinating book without doing some work. If we want a life that's really worth living, that's truly satisfying, Ecclesiastes says that you and I have to be ruthlessly honest about what controls our hearts, our beliefs, and our behavior. That's what this little book is really all about. And as we come to the opening passage this morning, we find that it has three important features. First of all, we meet the teacher, that is to say, the person who wrote the book. Second, we find the message, not just of this opening uh, passage, but the message of the book as a whole. And then thirdly, we find there is a challenge which the author puts before. Everybody, which, of course, includes you and me this morning. Let's look at those three things together. Firstly, the teacher. Uh, you'll find he's introduced to us in verse 1, uh, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And uh, if you were paying attention, you probably saw that he's introduced to us again in almost the same words in verse 12. But who on earth is he? Uh, the most obvious explanation is that this is Solomon. Uh, after all, as we've seen, he was the son of David, he was king in Jerusalem. And uh, you might remember in 1 Kings that God gave Solomon great wisdom. And uh, as a result of that, he spoke uh, 3,000 proverbs, we're told in 1 Kings, and 1,005 songs. Not all scholars would agree with that, but it does seem to me more than likely that Solomon did, in fact, write Ecclesiastes. But whether it's Solomon or whether it's someone pretending to be Solomon, it doesn't change the main message. Because what the author is saying to us is this "Um, Look, I I had it all, I had fabulous wealth. I had uh, more wives and more sexual experience than anybody else. I had an international reputation for wisdom, second to none. And people came from all over the place to seek my advice. So as the world measures success, I was more successful than anybody. And I suppose if we were to bring that up to date, we would have to say that the teacher is Elon Musk, Johann Rupert, and Nelson Mandela, all rolled into one. So straight away, the teacher has our attention. He's a man of the world. He's a man of experience. He's someone worth listening to. But we mustn't stop there, because the teacher is far more than a successful tycoon. So keep a finger in chapter 1 and turn ahead to the end of the book, chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 12. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So this is telling us, you see, stay there, stay on that passage, this is telling us that the picture we have of the teacher in chapter 1 is incomplete. And these verses give us four additional characteristics. First, the teacher is wise, verse 9. Now that's important because, unlike so many successful businessmen, uh, the teacher's not living in some ivory tower completely divorced from reality, you know, surrounded by yes men. No. The teacher has his feet firmly on the ground where real people live their lives. So he's talking to people like us. Second, he's thoughtful. We see at the end of verse 9 that he's pondered and searched out his material and set it in order. And that means he hasn't simply sort of rushed into print after an especially depressing day in the office. Third, he's also a skillful, creative writer. Uh, He's written much of his material in Proverbs. Now Proverbs, as we'll see in a fortnight's time, are a way of making people think. Uh, Verse 11 says that Proverbs are like goads. Those are like cattle prods that you would use on the farm. Proverbs are like goads prodding us to work out what we believe, what we believe about life, what we believe about ultimate reality. But fourth, and most important of all, what he writes is upright and true, verse 10. So you see, Ecclesiastes um, isn't philosophical speculation. This is life as it really is. Now, why do I say that? How do I justify that statement? Answer, because, verse 11, it has all come from one shepherd. In other words, behind everything the teacher has written stands the shepherd of Israel, who is, of course, Almighty God. So God is the ultimate author of this book, and the teacher is, is his mouthpiece. Now that of course means we need to pay extremely careful attention to what the teacher has to say. And on that note, come back with with me now please to chapter 1 as we move on and think secondly about the teacher's message. What is his message? Well it's stated, isn't it, very bluntly in verse 2. Can you see chapter 1, verse 2? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, you can't have a more depressing start to a book than that. So imagine with me for a moment that you are the editor in a publishing house. And uh, on Monday morning, one of the juniors comes into your office with a manuscript. Uh, And he says to you, you've really got to read this. And uh, you say, oh really, why? Uh, Who wrote it? What's it about? And you say, well, it's by a very clever man from the university. He didn't leave his name. But he says that he's discovered what the whole world has been looking for. Oh really? That sounds absolutely fascinating. What is it? Well, he says he's found the meaning of life. And what's his conclusion? That life is utterly meaningless. Now, if you were the editor, what would you say at that point? I think you would say, don't be ridiculous. No one's ever going to read that. Far too depressing. I mean, wouldn't you say that? It's so depressing that at first glance, we're, we're actually amazed that something like this is even in the Bible at all. But we can't ignore it because the word translated meaningless appears 39 times in the book. It's the teacher's favorite word. So it's important for us to try and understand this morning what he means when he uses it. The first meaning of that word in the original is breath. Uh, So the psalmist says, uh, each man's life is but a breath and in that context what the psalmist means is that human life is extremely short and that's true of course. It's not quite the idea here but it does get us off to a good start but to take us further just imagine one of those bitterly cold mornings that we sometimes get here in the Cape in winter and you go outside first thing what happens? Well, when you breathe out, you can see your breath. But as soon as you see it, it's gone. You can't keep it. You can't control it. It simply disappears. Now, that, I think, is the meaning here. It's a way of talking about something that is without any substance that very quickly passes away. And the teacher says... With all my success, with all my wealth, with all my experience, this is what I've learned about life. You can't keep it, you can't control it, and on your own, you can't even understand it. Now, that's not quite so depressing, is it, as that word meaningless first appears, but it's still pretty dark, especially for someone as successful as the teacher. So we need to know how he came to arrive at that particular conclusion. What was the scope of his investigation? What was his method? Well, in the passage Faye read for us, the teacher talks about what he's observed under the sun. Did you notice that he uses that phrase three times? It's there in verse three It's there again in verse 9, and it's there in verse 14. It appears 29 times in the book as a whole, and it's a phrase you won't find anywhere else in the whole of the Old Testament. The idea is that in his quest to understand what makes life worth living, The teacher has strictly limited himself to what can be concluded from a purely human perspective if you leave God totally out of the picture. So, verse 3 is the question that the rest of the book tries to answer. And we could paraphrase verse 3 like this If you leave God out of your thinking, what makes life worth living? At the end of a life of hard slog and hard work, what are you going to actually have to show for it? And uh, to help us engage with the question, the teacher turns to the natural world. So in verses 5 to 7, he uses the natural world as a picture of human experience. So look at verse 5. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. In other words, like the sun, uh, life goes round in the same circles, rather like, I suppose, a carousel in a fairground. Uh, There are moments, aren't there, of excitement when the carousel's spinning round and you're on one of those horses that goes up and down. But when we get off, we're in exactly the same place as when we started. And that, of course, is true in so much of our human experience. So, for example, uh, in medicine, there have been many, many exciting advances in medicine, haven't there, over the last hundred years or so? So that, today, for example, very few babies die during labour. But down the road, down the road from the hospital... The abortion clinics are more full than they've ever been. Now, is that progress? Have we actually moved on? What about verse 6? The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. I was having problems with my computer this week, and it made me think that... That the advances that there are in technology mean that today, if our computer is working, which mine wasn't, we can all do far more work in less time than ever before. And so what happens? What happens is we rush around like the wind in verse 6, taking on more and more work, finding ourselves busier and busier with every single year that passes. But like the wind... Are we really getting anywhere? Anywhere that really, finally, ultimately matters? Have these tremendous advances set us free to spend more time with family or making real friendships? Uh, do we really know that much about one another's lives? Or have we actually given our souls to the endless tyranny of email and WhatsApp and the Internet? And then he picks up a different image from nature to make us think about the meaning of life without God. Verse 7, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Now unfortunately the streams in the Western Cape don't really help us very much here. But uh, imagine a massive river, like, like say, for, for example, the Nile, uh, which in certain places, is, I understand, about a mile wide. And uh, there it is. It's been flowing for thousands and thousands of years into the Mediterranean, and yet the Mediterranean never fills up, does it? So verse seven is, it's an image of futility. And what he's saying is that man passes briefly and frantically across the stage of creation and leaves it essentially totally unchanged. I think all of us deep inside want to leave a legacy behind us when we die that shows that our lives have made some kind of a difference. But look at what the teacher says, verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. Yes, there are newspapers, but there's actually nothing new in them, is there? I didn't know this, but apparently it takes nine acres of forest to produce just one issue of the New York Times. But what do the newspapers tell us that is actually new? There are always wars, just different countries. There are always scandals, just different politicians. So I think one writer puts it very well when he says all new news is actually just old news happening to new people. Well, that's right, isn't it? And so for most of us, I think verse 11 rings very true indeed. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of men of old and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I think you're, most of you, too young to have heard of the comedian Tony Hancock, but um, he was a comic genius during his lifetime. Uh, But like many, many comedians, he he suffered from chronic depression. And for many years, he, he wrestled with this question, what does make life worth living? And just a few days before he committed suicide, he recorded his last monologue, on television, And this is what he said, quote, What have you achieved? He's talking to himself here. What have you achieved? You contributed absolutely nothing to life. A waste of time, you being here at all. No place for you at Westminster Abbey. The best you can expect is a few daffodils in a jam jar and a slab of rough-hewn stone Bearing the legend, he came and he went, and in between, nothing. After a year or so, somebody might say down the pub, Where's old Hancock? Haven't seen him around lately. Oh, he's dead, you know. Is he? And then Hancock concluded, Nobody will even know that I existed. Well, that is brutal. But you see, friends, if we believe that life under the sun is all that there is, if there is no God, well, it's absolutely true. Most of us will end up either in a graveyard or as a name on a parish register or a plaque on a wall somewhere and will be quickly forgotten. And our quest for immortality, for our lives to mean something, after we've gone, will be quite literally meaningless. Now why is that? Why is that? Well, it brings us to our third heading this morning, which is the challenge of the whole book. And you'll find the teacher's challenge in verse 13. Verse 13. He says, I devoted myself to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. That means under the sun. And he's talking about how men and women live when God is not the focus of their lives. And he says, what a heavy burden God has laid on men. Now, this is the most important thing we're going to look at this morning. So I do want you to tune in carefully. What he means is that God has done something that is going to frustrate all of our efforts to find meaning and lasting significance without him. Verse 14, have a look at verse 14. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. And what the teacher's doing is he's challenging you to take a very honest look at your life and to ask yourself, well, actually, what am I chasing after? What comes first in my life? If you look at how you spend your time and your money, and if you're really honest about the things you spend most of your time thinking about, what are you chasing after? Because if it's anything other than God, In the long run, all you're doing is chasing after the wind. And as we draw these threads together, I want to take you to two New Testament passages to focus your thinking on this during the coming week. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 18, the Apostle says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Notice that word. Not by its own choice. But by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, listen very carefully, because that word frustration in verse 20 is the same word which is translated meaningless in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, God has deliberately imposed frustrations on us. He's made sure that nothing in life will work in a way that allows you and me to think that we're back in the Garden of Eden. He's actually not going to let you and I achieve anything that might stand between him and us in our affections. Not marriage, not academic achievement, not wealth, not family, not sporting success. These are good things, don't misunderstand me. But by themselves, none of those things will truly and finally satisfy us. And God has made sure of it. You see, he loves us far too much to let it be otherwise. And so because of that, all of our striving after these other things as the ultimate thing is a dead end. And if we chase after those things as our primary objective in life we will simply end up frustrated and exhausted. So what's the solution? Well, there is actually no solution until the Lord Jesus enters our world. But when he does enter our world, you don't need to look at it, he says these marvelous words in Matthew chapter 11 Verse 28 and following. You know the words well. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Burdened for what? Burden to find meaning in life. That's what he means. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, friends, what that means is that the only way that any of us can find meaning and lasting satisfaction is by surrendering our lives to Jesus, And I don't there mean just a tiny little bit. I'm not talking about an hour and a half on Sunday morning and one hour in Bible study during the week. I mean giving him everything. Because then and only then will you and I find a life that is truly worth living. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this timely reminder that you are the Sovereign Lord. The whole creation, every detail of our lives is always under your Sovereign control. Lord, engrave this awesome truth upon our wayward hearts. Help us to realize the sheer futility of attempting to find meaning and significance apart from you and draw us back to yourself with cords of love that we might surrender our whole lives to the Lordship of Jesus and so discover the abundant and satisfying life that you want for each one of us. For it is in his precious name we ask it. Amen.